So that is a message that we just can't hear enough. Fear not tomorrow. Tomorrow is one. And hopefully as we have been going through this book, you have been discovering that this isn't a scary book, that this is a book of hope, that this is a book of encouragement, that this book should inspire the church and not terrify the church. And so uh, I want to welcome you. If you're a regular here and you're here all the time, glad that you're here. Good to see you. If you're a guest with us, we're especially thankful uh, to have you and uh, pray that today is a blessing to you. And if you're online with us, uh, we just want you to know we're thankful for this technology and we look forward. Don't know what's happening there. I think there's... Let's try that. That better? All right. Um, well, if you're online, that was just a great, awesome thing that just experienced. That was just for you. We hope that you enjoyed that uh, little interlude there. Um, so, hey, we, we have been looking at this book, talking about this book, um, and we're, we're kind of talking about 12 through 22 of Revelation right now. Um, now, we earlier this year went through 1 through 11. If you're jumping in new with us, I want to encourage you to uh, go back, maybe catch up on some of the things that you missed out on. There's a whole lot uh, that I don't have time to catch us up on. But what we do need to know is this, that John is exiled on the island of Patmos. And while he's there, he's given a revelation of the risen Lord Jesus. So this is not multiple revelations. It's one revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, he was told to share some things with the churches. And there were seven churches in Asia Minor, and he was told to give these messages. And so it was written to a specific group of people, but it was written for the entire capital C church. So it was written to them, but it was written for them and all of us. And so because of that, um, we need to understand this book can't mean something for us that it did not mean for them, that uh, it, it had to have meaning for them today. And so one of the things that we need to do, and this is a good practice for any time you're reading scripture, is say, what was intended to the first hearers? And then what do we hear from this? And what does God want to say to all of us? And so there were in the first three chapters, the messages to these churches, and there were these seals that needed to be broken. There was a scroll and nobody could open the scroll. And we're given this vision of this throne room of God and nobody could open the scroll, but then the Lamb of God, the, the slain Lamb, Jesus Christ, is able and has the power to, to open the scroll. And he begins to break the seals, and there's these trumpets that play. And it gets to the last trumpet. On the seventh trumpet, there's silence in heaven. And it's almost as if, this is right at chapter 12, it's almost as if there's this pause. And so chapters 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 is this pause in the middle of the book of Revelation, and it's this interlude. It's this, hey, let me make sure you know what's going on kind of a moment. And it's as if Jesus wants to pull the curtain back and say, hey, I know we've been talking about all the things, but let me make sure you know the cosmic battle that is happening before your very eyes, but you just don't see it because the curtain needs to be pulled back. And so uh, the curtain's pulled back, and in chapter 12, we see some, some things being exposed. So we know from earlier in Revelation that there's a throne room, and there's God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in this throne room, that the whole universe is ultimately pointed to this throne room of God, and there's worship happening in heaven and, but then we find out in chapter 12 and 13 that there's another trinity that's kind of like this mocking trinity that's trying to be this, this fake, halfway, half-baked trinity. And so you've got in chapter 12, we, we're seeing the dragon. And the dragon is Satan, and the dragon is trying to mimic God the Father. And then we see in chapter 13 that we talked about last week, these two beasts. There was a beast that came out of the sea and a beast that came out of the land. And we talked about uh, there was kind of a dragon-manipulated state, uh, state and, and uh, political systems, and then dragon-manipulated religious things that point people to the state instead of pointing people to Jesus. And so we just talked about the, the fact that the dragon wants to destroy, but he doesn't do it directly. He does it very subtly. He does it very subtly, and he draws our attention, and the purpose of the dragon and the purpose of these two beasts is to draw our attention 
away from the one true God who has the capacity to save and restore and to put our eyes on something else. And anytime we do that, we're following the beast. And, and so here's what chapter 14 does. So this interlude really just exposes things and people. So chapter 12 exposes Satan, exposes the dragon. Chapter 13 exposes these two beasts. And chapter 14 exposes uh, someone too, but you're not going to like it because it exposes us. Chapter 14 is all about saying, hey, by the way, you're on a side. By the way, there's no neutral here. There, there's a war going on. There is the army of the Lamb of God, and there is the army of the beast that is following the dragon, and you are on a side. There is no neutrality. You, you're, you can't play the middle and, and kind of just hang out. And and if you would say, well, I'm not actively, you know, and, and we saw this at the end of 13, that there were some that were marked with the beast by the thoughts of their mind and the actions of their hands, that they were following the beast by what they thought about and what they did. But in 14, at the beginning, we saw last week that there are others that are marked by the mark of the lamb, by the way they think and by the things that they do with their hands. And, and you might say, well, I'm not following the beast. I'm not on that army. I'm, I'm not doing that. But anytime you're just passive, Anytime you're not actively pursuing the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, according to the book of Revelation, that Satan wins at that point, because that's what he wants you to do. He wants you to just sit back and be lulled to sleep. He wants you to just say, well, I'll just be passive on this. I'll, I, I'm not going to really pick a side. When you don't pick a side, you have picked a side, and you've picked the side of the dragon. You've picked the side of the beast, because to not be actively pursuing God to be thinking of the things of God and doing the things that God tells you to do is to be doing the things that Satan wants, which is distracting you from pursuing the one true God. And so these, uh, what chapter 14 and the rest of the next few chapters as we get into the bowls of God's wrath do, it's similar to like what you would do if you saw a little kid who was running towards an interstate highway and they were chasing a butterfly or something, right? And they're like chasing this butterfly and they're running towards this interstate highway with cars just zooming as fast as they could. Like what Revelation 14 and these next few chapters do is similar to what you would do in that moment. You would be like, hey, stop, there's danger, right? And you wouldn't tell them about the danger in front of them because you relished in what might happen if they were to run out in the street. You would tell them of that danger in hopes that they would stop and in hopes that they would turn around and not be injured and damaged by running out into that street. And so um, what we see here in Revelation 14 and in the next few chapters is this kind of yelling out to, hey, stop. And so if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, if you're watching online, you're already a follower of Jesus, this chapter should encourage you, it should excite you, because this chapter is all about who wins in the end, right? And you kind of like, yes, like there's, there's hope, there's victory, this is good news. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and you've not yet stepped over the line to put your hope and trust in Christ, then the hope of what we're going to talk about today is not to beat you up and make you feel terrible, the hope of what we're going to talk about today is for you to recognize you don't have to keep going that direction and you can stop and you can be saved and you can come out from under the judgment that you are in right now. And so it is, it is meant to be a, a hope-filled chapter, and I hope you'll see that as we jump in. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, and we'll pick up at verse 6. We read the first few verses of this uh, last week, and we'll pick up today at verse 6. It says this, And I saw another angel. Let me just tell you this real quick. There are three angels, and there are two harvests. All right, we're going to talk about the three angels. We're going to talk about the two harvests. Um, the two harvests, um, kind of, there's, there's a, a harvest, and there's a big sickle, and the sickle is swung, and most of us, that gets really scary because we're picturing the Grim Reaper and we're like, oh, this is going to be bad, right? I just want to tell you, it's good news coming at the end for these harvests, all right? Nowhere in the Bible is the harvest talked about as a negative. Nowhere in the harvest, one time, 
is there mention of a harvest where there's not celebration and it's good. Anytime the Bible talks about a harvest time, it's, it's a celebratory time, not a scary time. And so uh, these three angels come along, and the, the first one, I saw another angel flying through the sky carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to people who belong to this world and to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And so we've seen this language over and over again. It's, it's the whole world. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all the springs of water. And so if you're taking notes, you can just write down angel number one is sharing the eternal good news. So this church is just kind of helping the church proclaim the gospel in the good news. There is the, the idea behind this is not that the angel's out doing all the hard work and we just get to sit back and be like, oh, good. Thank goodness that angel's out there doing that. I, the idea is, is that the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be sharing the good news of Jesus, but we have heavenly help to come before us. That it's not just up to us, there's heavenly help, there's, that God has sent this angel to go and help proclaim the good news. We do know that there are places in the world, particularly in the Middle East right now, where there are people that are having visions and dreams and, and hearing of Jesus, and so no one is telling them, but they're, they're having visions of the risen Lord Jesus, um, and, and they're turning to Christ and, and away from other religions and faith, and so we know that that can happen, but the, the typical practice and, the, and the, the typical idea of Scripture is that God's people, the church, are supposed to be sharing the good news. This is one of the ways you can know how you're marked. Let me just say this, right? Um, we know that if you are marked with the mark of the Lamb, that you're thinking about the things of God and you're doing the things of God. And we know that Scripture says one of the things that the people of God ought to be doing is telling people the good news of Jesus. This is one of the ways that you can decide and you can know, am I marked with the mark of the Lamb? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And you say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. So if you have the gift of evangelism, you better be sharing Jesus with 10 people every day. But none of us get a pass on this. None of us get to say, well, I don't have the gifts of service, so therefore I will never serve anyone. No, right? If you don't have the gifts of service, you still have to serve. But there are some people that excel at serving others and caring for others. The gift of evangelism just means that you ought to be rocking it all the time. But whether you have the gift of evangelism or not, you should be sharing Jesus with others. You should be doing it in kind ways and not weird ways. Don't be strange. You know, just be a normal person. But you, you probably tell people about things you're excited about, right? Um, we, this is just normal. It's not strange for us to share with people something that we're excited about. Uh, how many of you go on Amazon and you read reviews or you read a Yelp review on a restaurant before you go to that restaurant? Um, I'm just curious, in this room, how many of you have ever written a, Yelp, a, a review on a restaurant or you've written a review on a product you bought on Amazon? Raise your hand. Let me see. You've written something. Look at that. You people are evangelists. You are evangelists. If you can do that for a blender, you can't do that for Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who saved you from your sins. So that the idea is that like, if you can be excited enough about a hamburger to say, you know what, that's a pretty good place. And da, 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 da. Like, if you can do that for a hamburger place, why can't you do that for Jesus? And there are people all around us who need to know a positive review. They're looking for, okay, I'm not following Jesus and it could be, remember we talked about last week, that one of those beasts is, is a religion that is just religion pointing people to things other than Christ. And so it's, it's, a, it's a mockery of what true following Christ is. And some people have experienced that religion and they think they've experienced the real thing. And so they've turned away from the real thing because they've only experienced this, this beast. And, and what they need to do is they need to understand from someone who has experienced the real thing, hey, this is great. This is amazing. It's, this, is, this is a really totally different thing, having had that kind of encounter. And so um, what, it's so important that, that we're willing to just share the good news of Jesus. So um, then we get to verse 8. Let me keep moving here. We'll get to the second angel. Verse 8, Revelation 14 says this, Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen. 
The great city has fallen because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. In the CSB and in most other English translations, it's translated this way. And another, of the, another, a second angel, followed saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And so in the New Living, it talks about passionate immorality. In most other English translations, it's actually translated sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And so um, now remember, this can't mean for us something different than it meant to the first hearers. And for the first hearers, they wouldn't have had to guess, well, who's Babylon? What's going on with this Babylon? They would have known Babylon was Rome. Babylon was, was a, a symbol of any nation state that was completely setting itself up over God. It would have been clear that Babylon was Rome at this time, but it was written to them, but it was written for all of us. And so it's not just Rome. It's any time a culture, a civilization, a state begins to prop up sexual immorality over the ways of God. That's, that's what's going on here. And this angel comes along, and in your notes you can just write this down, this angel exposes the lies of sexual immorality. That's kind of what this, this second angel comes along and does. The, the key to this passage is that in uh, where it says, in drinking the wine of sexual immorality brought destruction. So um, Rome, you have to remember, this, this culture was so inundated with sexual immorality. It was so normative to their culture of that day that the, the first hearers of this would have been thinking of all of these different things. And we know, because we looked at the letters earlier to Pergamum and Thyatira, that there were people actually in the church who were saying, hey, we should just kind of compromise with some of the, the things that are going on in the culture, and we can participate in some of the temple worship, and, and we can participate in some of this sexual sin and, and it's okay, and it was actually happening in the church, and the message from Jesus to the churches is, hey, listen, this is not okay. There is a right and there is a wrong, and it is not okay to kind of be in this place of saying we can compromise and we can be in the middle. And so the, the temples in Rome were typically fertility gods and goddesses, and the way that these fertility gods and goddesses worked is you went to the temple and you had sex with a temple prostitute, which then caused the gods in heaven to have sex, which then caused the rain to fall, which caused the crops to grow. This is how the fertility gods of this day worked. And so prostitution was very normal. And, and sexual promiscuity and adultery was completely normal and accepted in the Roman culture. Homosexuality was completely normalized in the Roman culture. And so as we think about the message to the church in Rome and the message to the church today, this angel is saying, hey, Babylon has fallen. And in 96 AD, Rome was doing pretty good. And they'd have been like, I don't know, I'm looking around, Rome's doing all right. But this angel is saying, hey, listen, all of the promises of all of the things of Babylon are going to lead to nothing, that Babylon will ultimately fall. And this isn't just to Rome this isn't just to the first Christians that read this letter. This is to us. Think about our culture today. Think about how our culture is so immersed in sexual immorality. It's, it's everywhere we look as a culture. We, we live in a culture where uh, there is sex before marriage is normalized. It, it's just, it's expected. I mean, you, you, people... People say, well, you know, you got to kick the tires before you buy a car. You know, you, there, it's just expected that this would happen. And, and every television show and every movie, the, the people go on a date, and usually before the first date's over, they're in bed together. And, and so especially young people, they watch all of this, they're immersed in all this, and they just start to think, well, that's normal, that's acceptable, that's right. But God says, no, that's not. That's not how I intended I intended you to wait until marriage and that this was to be pure and this was to be good and, and it's to be with one man, with one woman for the rest of your life. And this is God's best 
Uh, we, we look at the pervasiveness of pornography in our culture and, and how it is just uh, so accessible and so private and so secret. And, and the more private and secret it is, the more it has spread. And, and it's certainly, um, you know, it's, it's not just an issue for young people. It's young to old that, that, that struggle with this. But our young people are handed technology with no filters, no monitors, and, and they have questions and they find their questions answered on social media and through pornography, and the message is not what God's intent is, it's the world's intent, and, and it just spreads this, this lie of sexual immorality that is just spreading all over our culture. Homosexuality is, is not just um, normalized, but it's glorified in our culture. And let me just be clear, I'm, I'm not beaten up I was, that was the third thing in my list, right? So if you struggle with same-sex attraction and you're here, you're watching online, I, I'm not beating up on you. I'm saying there's lots of sexual brokenness. There's heterosexual sexual brokenness, and there's homosexual sexual brokenness. But God says, listen, your temptations and your struggles do not define you. I define you. God, God says you are a child of of the king. That is who you are meant to be, and you struggle with certain things. And I just think our, our day today, we can no longer ask the question, do you struggle with some kind of sexual brokenness? The question more and more is, how are you doing with your struggle, right? Because there, there's, you, you cannot live in this sexually charged culture without there being some struggle. So the question is not, do you struggle? The question is, how are you doing with the struggle? Are you struggling well, or are you not struggling well? And, and we see all of this, uh, you know, and when it comes to just the explosion of gender dysphoria and confusion about what is a man and what is a woman, and uh, there, there are so many things with our culture right now that this angel is saying, hey, wake up, wake up. This angel said this to Rome, this angel saying this to us today, wake up, these things don't fulfill what they promise to fulfill. God's way is always better. And, and no matter what your temptations are, no matter what your struggles are, the message of the gospel is you can be forgiven, you can be redeemed, and you can be empowered by the Spirit to live differently, and you do not have to succumb to your lowest temptations. That's, that's the hope of the gospel, right? And it's not in your power, it's in the gospel power of Jesus Christ. And so this uh, angel comes along and, and, and helps people wake up from the brokenness and the lies of sexual immorality. And, and when that happens and when they begin to wake up, when they begin to wake up, we the church should be right there. And we're not there to beat them up over the head and say, see how bad you were and how terrible your life was. No, we're there to say, we too have experienced healing and forgiveness and redemption from brokenness, and you don't have to stay where you were, and God has a better path for you. And, and the church is a church that welcomes people in with this brokenness and says, you can be loved, you can be healed, and you can be restored. That is the message and the good news that the church is to share. And so... Then we get to verse 9, which is this third angel. And, and we don't like this third angel because the third angel talks about lots of stuff that we don't like. So here it is. Let's just read it. Then a third angel followed them and shouted, Anyone who worships the beast in his statue or who accepts this mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night. For they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. Now, most of us have bought into the lie that love and anger cannot coincide. We just think, well, God can't be an all-loving God and be a God that gets angry, and that's actually not true. Here's the, here's the best way I can help you understand this. Uh, when it comes to children, your children specifically, um, if, if your children did not matter to you, it would be very hard for someone to invoke anger and wrath. If someone was trying to hurt your children, you, you would be 
completely neutral because if they didn't matter to you. But because you deeply love your children, when someone's trying to hurt your child, it totally brings up anger and wrath in you, right? Because you know that there's something trying to hurt and destroy the child that you love so much. And, and so it enrages you when, when someone would do that. And so in the same way, God, who is love, not God who has love, but God who is love, is capable of great wrath and anger because anytime someone sides with the beast and the dragon, the beast and the dragon are all about destroying everything good that God has created. And, and God, because he loves his creation so much and he has such good things intended for his creation, when something tries to destroy that which he loves so dearly, it absolutely creates anger and wrath in God. And, and that should make sense to us, but it's it's, it's this idea, and I put this in your notes, you don't want an indifferent God. An indifferent God is far crueler than a God who cares so much that he's provoked to anger against that which destroys his created order. That the, the idea of a God who's just kind of up in heaven and doesn't really care and just you know, doesn't care if things are out there destroying all that he loves and holds dear... I mean, that, that's more like Greek mythology and the gods who just didn't care about the earth around them than it is the true God in heaven who loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. This, this just, you know, absolutely it angers God when Satan and the beast tries to pull people away and people side with the Satan and the beast in order to bring destruction to all that God has created. So, um... This idea of, of hell being a real place is talked about a lot in Scripture. And I, I know some of you are like, wow, I had no idea we were going to talk so much about sex and hell. Totally would have skipped today. Um, so, but here we go. Um, hell is real, all right? It, and this isn't, this isn't the Bible telling us about hell because it relishes the idea of hell, right? It's the idea of, hey, there's traffic there. Don't go there. But there is going to be damage that comes if you keep running in that direction. Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else. Jesus uh, not only talked about it, but he described it. In Luke 16, he describes it as a chasm which no one could cross, that there would be two sides of this chasm, and people who were in hell couldn't get over to the other side. In Matthew 25, he talked about a time where people would be separated into two groups and, and that uh, one would enter into the presence of God and the other would be banished into eternal fire. Um, in Luke 16, 23, Jesus said that hell was a place of eternal torment. In Mark 9, 43 to 48, he said that it's a place where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. In Matthew 13, Jesus said, this is a place where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret forever. I mean, the imagery of this. Uh, in Matthew 25, 30, Jesus called hell a place of outer darkness and weeping. Now, whether or not hell is actually these things, fire and sulfur and maggots that never die, or this is language that Jesus was using to help describe just how terrible hell will be and using language that we could understand. That will be debated until Jesus comes back, right? We, we just don't know the answer to some of those things. But here's what we do know, and everyone agrees on, that hell is the absence of God and everything good. That is what hell is. And, and hell is never pushed upon people Hell is simply where God will reluctantly allow people to go who do not receive his grace and his mercy. Let me say that again. Hell is not somewhere where God is going to send people. Hell is where he will reluctantly allow people to go who choose to go there and choose to side with the dragon and the beast. And, and so if hell is... Everything from God. Scripture says everything, every good gift that we have is a gift from God. So think about everything good that you enjoy. Everything, any good experience you've ever had in your life, rest and peace and joy and laughter and all of, any good gift you've ever had, whether you're following Jesus or not, that good gift came from God. And hell is when God says, 
I, I will finally give you what you want and I will withdraw my presence from you. And it will be eternity of, of something that we can't even wrap our minds around because we don't know what it's like to not have the presence and the goodness of God even when we're not following him. John 3.16 says it this way. And we know this verse. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. John 3.17 says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but everyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And listen to this. This is so important. Verse 19. And the judgment, this is the judgment, is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. So, so Christ comes into the world, he brings hope, he brings forgiveness, he brings light, and we say, eh, I'm not interested. I like my way better. I like what I'm doing. I like what I get to do now. And, and there will come a point where God will reluctantly say, okay, I'll let you have what you want, and I will remove my presence from you. And when that happens, we can't wrap our minds around how dark and how terrible and, and, and how ugly that will be. And so I, I just, I want to love you enough today to say to you, there's traffic in front of you. And if you are under the wrath of God, turn around. You don't have to keep going that direction. But there is a real danger that you're headed to. And Jesus talked about it. It is real. And, and I, I'm asking you to turn. And now, if you're doing evangelism and you're a follower of Jesus, don't lead with this one, okay? This is, this is not where you start, all right? Um, I'm doing this because you're here in church and I want to make sure that there's none of us that are under the wrath of God so that we can come out and we can experience his hope and forgiveness. But just because you're a good person does not mean that you're going to not be under the wrath of God. The Bible says your goodness is as, as filthy rags before God. The only way we can come out from under the wrath of God is that we would accept Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and, and be forgiven. And this is where these two harvests play in. And so um, I, I think these three angels, they model for us how to do this, all right? So, so don't lead, don't lead with the wrath of God, okay? That, that might not be a good, you know, Facebook post when you get home um, today. Um, don't lead with the wrath of God, um, but you lead with the, the kindness and goodness and the love of God, right? It, that first angel was sharing the good news of the gospel, right? Uh, you, you lead by allowing people to experience the brokenness of their own sin and then being there ready to receive them with love and, and point them in better directions. Uh, but then to lovingly be able to tell them the truth um, that is this, and the third angel, you can write this in your notes, is lovingly telling the truth about sin and its consequences. That's, that's what this third angel does. So the first angel shares the good news. The second angel says, hey, Babylon has fallen. All this sexual immorality will not bring the things that you want it to bring. And the third angel just lovingly tells the truth about sin and its consequences, that there are consequences for sin. So then we get to these two harvests at the end of 14. And so this, again, this is good news. If you're a follower of Jesus, these harvests should excite you, not terrify you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know this. These harvests are a picture of why you don't have to stay under the wrath of God. And today, you can leave this place not being under the wrath of God, but being under the mercy of God. And so this is uh, these two harvests. Verse 14 picks it up, and it says then, Then I saw a white cloud, and seated on that cloud was someone like the Son of Man. And by the way, I know what time it is, and I'm going to go fast, but we're going to go a little bit over. All right, just... For some of you who are wondering, is he going to end on time? No, I'm not. I'm just telling you. Um, so, seated on someone like the Son of Man, and he had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand, 
And the other angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud. So the one sitting on the cloud, this imagery has been used before in Revelation. This is Jesus. The one who has the gold crown, the one who is like the Son of Man. This is Jesus. And this other angel uh, shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, who is Jesus, swing the sickle, for the time of the harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud, which was Jesus, swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. So there's lots of debate. When, when does this harvest happen? When is the sickle? There would be certain people that would teach Revelation that would tell you this is going to happen in the future, and, and this is kind of like you know, the rapture and the sickle and all that. Uh, here's the deal. This language has been used before, though. This language has been used before. This idea uh, that there is a time of harvest and, and that the crop of the earth is ripe for harvest is familiar language to us. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 35 said it this way, you know the sayings, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up, look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. And so um, this harvest, this first harvest, is Jesus swinging his sickle. And from the time Jesus came and the ministry that he began, when Jesus said the kingdom of God has come, that, that this harvest began. You're a part of this harvest. If you're a follower of Jesus and you heard the good news proclaimed like that first angel and you kind of woke up to the fact that, man, the direction of my life and the things that I'm pursuing, they're creating emptiness and, 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 and I, I, feel, I don't feel whole and I don't feel fulfilled and there's got to be something more. And then somebody had the kindness to share with you that there were consequences to your sin and that you could repent and turn and receive the good news. And then you did. You're a part of the harvest. You're a part of this, and every single person since the time Jesus came who is a follower of Jesus is a part of this first harvest. But then there's this second harvest described. And this second harvest is this in verse 17. And after that, another angel came from the temple in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And this one is not Jesus. It's not described as the Son of Man. And then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar, and he shouted to the angel with a sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth. Now, this is a little bit strange because you do not harvest grapes with a sickle. That's not how you harvest grapes, but that's what happens here. And for they are ripe for judgment. So verse 19 says, So the angel swung his sickle over the earth, and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. And the grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. If you don't know how high a horse's bridle is, that's about four feet. So you've got this angel who swings this sickle and there's this great wine press of God's wrath and then there's blood there's so much blood that it's 180 miles long four feet deep and you just think that's gross why is that in the Bible the, the reason that this is something that should not scare us Jesus isn't trying to scare his church Jesus is trying to encourage his church. In the imagery of this, in my Bible, there's actually a footnote right next to verse 20, and it might be in your Bible as well. But in, next to verse 20, there's a footnote that points you to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. And in Hebrews chapter 13, 12, remember in, in verse 19, it says um, that these, the grapes of the winepress of God's wrath, and, and then it says that it was trampled in the winepress outside the city. And in Hebrews 13, 12, it says this, so also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. And so here, here's, here's what this imagery, which is so scary and maybe has been taught to you in a way that makes you like, oh no, this terrible thing's gonna happen and there's gonna be all this wrath. This imagery, this gross blood thing is this, there's enough blood for you. 
There's enough blood for you. No matter what your sin, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, there is enough blood to fully forgive and redeem that you can be set free and you can come out from the wrath of God because Jesus on the cross bore the brunt of God's wrath so you didn't have to. I mean, that's good news. That the hope of the gospel is I don't have to take the wrath of God because Jesus took the wrath of God so that I can receive the mercy of God. That his mercies can be new every morning to me. And, and ancient Palestine was about 180 miles long. And so the first hearers of this would have understood that there's enough blood to cover all. That there's enough blood and it's deep enough that no matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. Look how much blood there is. There's enough for you. There's enough for you to experience forgiveness and mercy and grace. And so the message again of Revelation is, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are you being marked by the lamb? Are you being marked by the beast and by the dragon? And if you are under the wrath of God today, my prayer is that you would not leave being under the wrath of God, that you would simply say, will you forgive me, Jesus? Will you be Lord of my life? And, and listen, you can make that decision today. We'll baptize you next, next Sunday, and, and you can take that first step of obedience, of, of publicly proclaiming what Christ has done in your heart. But I, I want to pray with us. I know what time it is, uh, but I, I want to I lead us in a prayer. So if you bow your heads and, uh, and pray with me. Father, I I ask right now for those that are already a part of the army of the Lamb, those that have already been marked by your grace and your mercy, and, and, and their foreheads and their hands are marked with the mark of the Lamb, that they are pursuing you with their thoughts, they're pursuing you with their actions. God, I pray that today would be an encouragement to them. I pray that today would be hope-filled that maybe these scriptures that we've read that have seemed so scary in the past, we can understand that, that they're not meant to scare us. They're meant to embolden us. They're meant to encourage us. They're meant to, to give us hope where there has been despair. Lord, that we would be reminded, and, and even in just a moment as we sing together, that we would sing as if it matters that we would sing because we have been saved. We would sing not, not because we're good enough, not because we've done something, but we would sing and give you all the glory and all the praise because you have done something in us and give you all the praise that you're worthy of. And Lord, for those who are here today, for those who are online, and, and, and they've just been kind of coasting, they've been buying into the lie that they can be neutral that they've been, they've been tampering and playing with things of this world, and, and today's a day where they want to turn towards you and experience your grace and recognize that there is enough blood for their forgiveness. There's enough blood for their redemption. There's enough blood for them to be saved and turned and, and empowered to live differently. God, may today they receive that. They choose to follow you. You just say, dear Jesus, will you forgive me of my sins? Will you be Lord of my life? I surrender to you. I don't even know what all that means, but, but today I want to start following you as best as I know. And Lord, I pray that as they just pray that simple prayer and as they begin to choose you, that you would help them experience hope and life and forgiveness and redemption in new and fresh ways. That everything old would be gone, forgiven, covered by the blood and everything would be made new. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a closing song. And these altars are open. If you want to pray for any reason, maybe you need to pray and just ask the Lord to, to work in you in greater ways. Maybe you need to ask Him for strength. Maybe you need to ask Him for encouragement. Maybe you need to say, hey, I want to come out from under some wrath. Maybe you're walking with Jesus and you want to pray for somebody else, but these altars are open if you want to pray as we sing.
saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion with him were 144,000 
who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And we talked about that last week. It, that 144,000, it represents all tribes and all nations and, and is representative of all the people of God who've been marked with the Lamb. But listen to what it says in verse 3. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So in other words, the angels couldn't sing this song because they don't know what it's like to be bought from sin and redeemed and, and bought with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. But we do. We know what it's like to be lost and then to be found. We know what it's like to be in sin and to then be found in Christ. And because we know, we need to sing that song. And we don't just sing it on Sunday mornings, we sing it with our life. We sing it with the thoughts that we have and the actions that we do with our hands. And so I encourage you as you leave here today to sing that song and be people who are marked by the Lamb and participate in what's already happening in heaven right now. Go in His peace. You're dismissed.